Hello, welcome to our introductory episode of The Literary Life Coach. Um, We're excited to be working on this podcast. It's something we've talked about for a long time. And so today we're going to introduce some ideas about the... We're going to introduce the the way that these podcasts are going to be formatted and we're going to talk a little bit about the picture of Dorian Gray. So Seth, um, I was wondering if you would first talk about what is external experiential processing? Yeah, external experiential processing is a, is a therapy or coaching model that we developed over the past um, close to two decades now. We've been working on it for a long time. But basically the, the premise is that you can externalize your problems, issues, mental health into a literary character um, and, and, and you could use movies and, and sometimes even we use music but uh, most effective is literature and so as as you read a book you can externalize your own problems into the book into the character and, and usually that that works that's most effective when there's a character who has a a similar theme in their story to what you're dealing with and as you as you externalize your experiences into the book, it allows you then to play out, kind of process your own problems, but from a third person perspective. So it's, it's a much safer place than, than processing your own direct experience. And then also as the, as the characters in these stories uh, resolve their issues, you're able to internalize some of those resolutions and and some of the problem solving that they do and so you are able to then take on some of that and become uh and find healthier ways to deal with your with your own experiences and so that that really allows you to work work from a distance a safer place than your own personal experiences but it also allows you to besides externalizing your own experiences and then processing processing them through the book you're also internalizing the problem solving and resolution from the book into your own life and your own experience. Thank you. And as you mentioned, we're going to be, this can be used for various types of media, but for this podcast, we're going to be primarily focusing on literature. And um, how is what you're doing with the literature different than analyzing a piece of literature? Well, the, the, I think one of the biggest differences is when I work with a client and, and we read a book, um, we don't analyze it. I just ask them to read the story. And, and then after they've read the story and they've experienced the whole story, then we can talk about the character's experiences and their experiences and, and, and the client's experiences. How do they, you know, sometimes they, we talk about how they relate to each other. Um, and, and, and then we talk about the problem solving and, and we just, just like I talked about, we work through these, the, the individual's experience while we work through the 
experience of the character. So really, it's just talking about experience. And it's not really analyzing um, the book as to whether it's a good book or a bad book or whether it's well written or it's, it's really just experiencing the story. Yes. And so when you go in with a you assign a client to read a book, for example, you don't tell them what you want them to get out of it because you don't have a specific thing that they are supposed to pick apart or analyze out of it. You want an integrated experience where they're synthesizing uh, their experience with the experience of the book rather than picking apart and dissecting, right? Right, right. I, I never I never ask my clients to look for anything in, in the book when I give it to them. I simply ask them to read the book. If they occasionally a client will ask me, well, what are we supposed to be looking for? And in that case, what I usually tell them is I say, why, why don't you read it and, and, and come back and tell me what you're looking for? Because I don't want to tell them what to look for. And if they, if they do feel like they need to look for something, that needs to be them looking for something and not me telling them what to look for. So, so I'll never, I, I've, I don't think I've ever given a client a book and said, look for this in this book or look for that. It's usually just read the book and then come back and tell me what your experience was with the, with the book and with the character. And I think that's really important. It's really important that what you're doing is different than saying, we're going to pull out a book on the quality of courage. And I want you to find all the examples of courage. And we're going to talk about that. Or I want you to, um, what, you're, what you're doing with literature, and I think this is an important part of it, is that you're seeing the literature as a whole work of art and that it works on somebody as a as a piece of art whole in itself and that if you went at it trying to say okay um this is this instead of a piece of art this is a self-help book look for these steps that you can follow and do these exercises that you would lose most or all of the power that you're getting from experiencing literature Oh, I, I think that's absolutely true because you would no longer be experiencing the literature. You would be searching and seeking for specific elements and therefore you would lose the experience. You might gain the elements. You know, like you say, maybe you're looking for courage. Okay, you'll find examples of courage, but you won't have experienced the book as a whole. And that's why I would never ask somebody to look for something specific um, I I, th I think it's when 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 you study psychology, especially when you study clinical psychology, one of the things you learn is that you should you should ask open ended questions. You want the you because you want the client's experience. You don't want to lead the client to to a false experience. So you always want to ask open ended questions. When I give a book, it's gonna this it's kind of the same way. I want the book to be open open-ended i don't want to and you want the client off. to be open too yeah absolutely Op open open to the experience that they are going to have with i never want them to have my experience with the book oh, i've had my own experience with the book um but i want i want the client's experience and that's why i don't want to i don't want to give them any kind of information that would that would guide their experience and we've talked about um how when people say oh, I haven't experienced something, I've just read about it, that you disagree with that because you would say that reading 
is an experience, that you're having an actual real experience with the book that you're reading. Oh, I think that's uh, that's absolutely true. And that's actually why I think I am a, a, a good coach because I am... I, I have read a lot of stuff and I've got a lot of experience that that I that I my my own personal life I wouldn't say wow I've experienced that but when a client comes to me and says you know I've I've you know I don't I don't know what kind of experience I, I could say but if somebody comes to me and says I've I've had this experience and I don't know how to deal with it and I that's why I'm here to get So help. you're saying that a lot of times you're drawing on the literature you've read for the references of personal experience to help clients. Yes, exactly. And 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 sometimes I will reference that when I'm talking with them. They'll be they'll tell me an you experience. You reference books a lot. Yes. <laughs> so they'll they'll give me an experience they might have had and I'll say, "Hey, that's just like so and so." You know, just that you know, that reminds me of uh of Pip in Great Expectations when he experienced, you know, what he experienced. So this is a lot about making connections and relationships between you and the books and relationships that you make between the books and relationships that you make between books and your own experience. Right, right. And that's and that's the thing is that each person as they read, they need to experience it for themselves. And they need to not have my experience. And it's kind of the same thing with trauma. You know, when when you know you say somebody was in a car accident, there were four people in the car, and you come away from that experience, all four of them the exact same experience, and yet their perspective will be completely different, and their reaction will be completely different. And I want I want when I, when I, when I have a client reading a book, I want to hear their experience with the book, not mine. And that's why I don't want to give them anything, any leading questions. I just want to give them the book, ask them to read it. And then together we will discuss what their experience with the book was. And uh, it's very powerful. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. I just wanted to set up a little bit of what's the model that we're going to be using for these discussions um, and talking about because exterior external experiential processing is such an important part of the work that you do. So what I wanted to do with the picture of Dorian Gray then is I want to kind of model a conversation that you could have when you're in the processing section of external experiential processing. So the external experiential is where you're experiencing the piece of art, the the work of literature or mm -hmm. the play or the music or whatever it is and then you have a processing part and that's what we're going to be modeling in most of these podcast episodes so are you ready to get into the picture of dorian gray yeah absolutely excellent so i so then let me ask you a question are we doing it where i'm going to talk to you about your experience with the book in the way that I would do with my clients? Or are we going to just discuss the book and I can talk to you about what client experiences would be like and how I might use the book with a client? Well, I feel like it could go either way. If we do it where you're talking to me as if I were a client, um, talking about my reading, then I'm the one who's going to be processing the book and you're mm -hmm. going to be leading the discussion. That's what you primarily do in your work. 
or we could be modeling it the other way where we could show you are processing the books that you've read. And in this case, you're the one who's read Picture of Dorian Gray most recently. Mm-hmm. So we might want to go that way. Okay. Although I don't yeah. feel like it has to be the same format for every episode. No, no, abs- absolutely not. I think it could go, we could we could do it differently in different, in different cases. But I agree that I, I did read this m- more recently. In fact, I read it very recently and I was so much enjoying the the book and and really as i was reading there are three basic personalities three characters that you're following and and there's a lot of side characters that that come in but they they really come in as they relate to those three characters yeah before we go ahead any more talking about picture of dorian gray i just wanted to say This is a spoiler warning. We are going to be talking about the plot of the book from the beginning to the end. Um, I think that you can enjoy and appreciate this episode if you haven't read The Picture of Dorian Gray, as long as you're okay with spoilers. I think that um, the conversation will be more meaningful to you if you have already read the book, but that you can get the sense of how the processing works either way. So it's totally up to you whether you want to read before or uh, listen to the conversation and then read the book later. Uh, but just heads up that we aren't going to be spoiler-free in the way that we're talking about this story. Right. Okay, go ahead, Seth. So, so I think I think to me as I as I look at as my experience with with reading this book, I I see three different like I said the three main characters. Yeah. So the are, main characters are um, Dorian Gray, of course, whose portrait is being painted by the second main character, Basil Howard. Yes. I don't know if that's Basil. his last name, but Basil is, he mostly just goes by Basil. In the yes, book. and then there's kind of an observer, third character, Lord Henry. Lord Henry, and 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 actually, interestingly. It, it's the book starts out we don't meet dorian at the beginning the book starts with a conversation between henry and basil and basil is is has created this painting and henry is lord henry is just in awe he's like wow this is the best painting you've done this is this is your masterpiece and and he wants to meet the um the model for the, the model for the painting and uh, Basil really doesn't want Lord Henry to meet him, um, and and it's Basil kind of sees Dorian as this um, almost angelic person. He, he's he's uh, innocent. He's beautiful. He's just everything that he would think of as an angel type being, and almost kind of idolizes him. And Lord Henry is a very worldly person. He, uh, his philosophy is that you should have as much fun as you can, while you, especially while you're young, and and uh, and he doesn't follow any real. Yeah, he's full of sarcastic quips and those really typical Oscar Wilde type witticisms that are very amoral. You know, they're just they kind of float off his tongue, and he says all these these things that you you don't really know whether he believes them himself. He may or may not believe any of the things he can say. He obviously says them because they're clever more than because they're true. Right. And and he's 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 just he's a very interesting interesting character, but he wants to meet Dorian. Basil doesn't want him to because Basil is afraid that uh Lord Henry will um 
what's the word? He wants to... Corrupt. Corrupt. Thank you. He's, he's afraid he'll corrupt Dorian and that Dorian will no longer be this kind of angelic, perfect being. You know, what I, I think is interesting about the character of Dorian Gray at the beginning of the book is that Basil Howard sees him as being innocent and pure. But I, as a reader, experience him as being naive and inexperienced. Mm-hmm. And I don't think those two things are the same, but they kind of present the same somebody who hasn't experienced sin as opposed to somebody who has chosen not to to do specific things right so dorian hasn't hasn't ever really faced the world yet he's he's a very he is very young and very inexperienced and he hasn't really faced the world yet there's been nobody to lead him astray and and so it is it is interesting that Basil sees him as like almost perfection. And and it and it's very clear. One of the things I think is very clear in the book, at least to me in my experiences, it is not based on Dorian's actual experience. It's based on Dorian's looks. Dorian looks innocent. And that's what Basil loves. And that's what he's painting. He's painting this look. Um, I don't think he even knows that much about Dorian. Do you think um, that it's just a natural human tendency to associate a certain kind of look with goodness and another kind of physical appearance with so, so, the so lack that, of goodness? Yeah, that goes back to when you, if you go and you think about Pride and Prejudice that... Um, Elizabeth says about Darcy and Wickham that one of them has all the goodness and the other all the appearance of it right and and that the people in Meryton they all believed Wickham and all of the things he said because he looked like somebody that that was truthful he looked truthful so I, I do think there's an element of that and I think we see that throughout literature um, and art right iconic art. Uh, the mm-hmm. iconic yeah excuse me let's just cut that the the depictions in art of um, characters who are supposed to be really innocent and holy and pure are almost always portrayed as beautiful and people who are shown as being um, deformed or grotesque or in some ways less physically attractive are representative of evil. Right. Yeah, exactly. So we have a really, really strong built-in association between attractiveness and goodness that isn't actual reality. It's just a mental association. And, and, and one thing that's interesting about that is that literature, a lot of literature tries to break, of, break us of that. You know, when you think about Jane Austen, I think a lot of her, liter- a lot of her writing is a, it has, has a fair amount to do with that and trying to break that. And then you've got this book where I think you're getting the same thing where you're saying it's not all about what you see. It's about what, you know, the person is doing. But then you, you... And if you go back to fairy tales, that's the point of the fairy tale Be- Beauty and the Beast, right? right? Which has an even older source in Greek and Roman mythology with the story of Cupid and Psyche. Mm-hmm. And, but the, the fairy tale Beauty and the Beast and that tale type is the idea of there's beauty in the beast. Somebody who the appearance of them is of something monstrous um, can actually be 
really good on the inside and it's not the appearance that makes the difference. Right. No, I, I, I think there's definitely an element of that. And I think that's kind of what Oscar Wilde here is playing on is this idea that, that this, this beauty, um, this, this appearance of just angelic goodness is there in, in Dorian and that's what that's what basil sees and wants yeah and so then the catalyst moment of the story then comes when dorian is introduced to this idea of how much his physical appearance is tied to his youthful innocence and he makes basically a faustian bargain that enables him to retain the appearance of youth and goodness and and it's interesting because i i think as and again we're talking a lot about our own experiences with the book and in my experience with the book is the the character that that i felt the most um i don't know if the what the word is but i felt the most kinship with the most was basil He's the character that I felt like, okay, I, I, that, that could be me. The most empathy? Yeah, maybe the most empathy. Um, and, and, and throughout the book, I kept thinking of Basil as the good guy, Lord Henry as the bad guy, and, and Dorian, and as, Dorian being the person as the person between. being pulled between the two. But once I, once I got near the, nearer to the end of the book, I, I, I realized that that. Basil wasn't the good guy. That Basil's, I you know, idolizing Dorian was just as harmful to Dorian as Lord Henry's worldly influences. In what way? In the way that when when he finished the painting, and and so 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 that's kind of our, our real catalyst moment was when Lord Henry shows up to the house to Basil's house and he just happens to come at the time that Dorian is coming to sit for the final sitting of the painting. And after, after he gets the last pieces, uh, the, the, the painter is going to come, you know, complete the painting and Dorian and Lord Henry go off into the garden and they talk to each other. And that's where Lord Henry's first introducing him to this idea of, of youth and the the beauty of youth and and that you and he kind of ex, in that moment he kind of talks about how you have to have as much fun as you can right now because you're not going to stay young it's one of those to the beautiful. maidens make much of time or carpe diem type right. of philosophies right yeah yeah exactly and so gather ye rosebuds while you may and so while he's talking in that moment to to dorian dorian's not even paying that much attention he doesn't care about what Lord Henry is saying. And then he comes back. They come back in. The painter Basil tells them, I'm done with the painting. Do you guys want to see it? They come in and Basil kind of talks about the angelic, almost, he kind of idolizes the painting and the young man. And so as Dorian then looks at the painting and he sees, he's starting to, to internalize this what basil is saying and and then he has this fear at that moment of what lord henry was saying in four or five years you're going to start to look older 
there's going to be signs in your face that you're older that you're going to be more experienced and those exper- that experience is going to show up in your face and he's and he's and so as 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 um Dorian is looking at this painting he's now internalizing these two different these two different ideals one this ideal of um idolizing himself i am this young youthful innocent wonderful person but also thinking about i'm going to age and i'm going to lose this and so basil is giving him the the idol telling him to idolize himself lord henry is telling him the idol won't last and it's in that moment that he makes that deal with the devil that faustian deal where he says i would give my life my soul he says i would give my soul if the painting would age rather than myself yeah so it's, so it's, it's a chilling moment right it's, it's a very chilling moment but it's a moment that required both of them lord henry by himself with his worldly philosophies that wasn't going to change dorian that wasn't going to push dorian into this direction he had to idealize himself over anything else so there's a couple of things that you said that i want to come back to um one i want to talk about your experience um you were experiencing connecting with the character of basil so that was the character whose experience you were most closely identifying yourself with right. as you read the story and then there comes a point where and this is usually true with the character that you're identifying yourself with you usually think well of them and we do that with ourselves too right just on a general everyday not self-reflective way we mostly kind of just think pretty well of ourselves Mm -hmm. and then something happens at some point in the story you woke up and you thought hey wait a minute he's as much basil is as much as at fault here as as lord Lord henry Henry. and what does that do to you when you're identifying with basil when you have that moment of realization well for myself it was a one it was really a wonderful moment of realization of recognizing i I guess in this particular case recognizing self self self-righteous tendencies and tendencies to look at at myself as maybe being above and and better than other people and being um maybe the, a little bit of condescension in the way that I communicate with some people and and recognizing that 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 can be you know hypocritical because I have my own idols. Yeah. And that's a pretty common human failing or human experience wouldn't you say to be at least sometimes self-righteous, sometimes critical of others, sometimes oh. hypocritical in the in the distance between the ideals we have and our what we allow ourselves to do. No, ab- absolutely, absolutely. And so, as it's interesting because as I re- as I read this book, that that was the character that I m- most closely identified with, and it was that experience that was exposed in in my reading. Um, I don't know. I don't think that a majority of people that would be that would be necessarily the character that they would identify with. 
Um, obviously, he's not the main character. In fact, he's for large portions of the book, he's not present. Um, the vast majority of the book, it's 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 Lord it's Lord Henry and Dorian that are off doing things, and and Basil just kind of comes in every now and then. Um, but it was it was just it was just his experience that you know when, when I'm externalizing my own experience it was that's where it went great the second thing I wanted to talk about was um, when you were talking about Dorian Gray looking at the painting and seeing himself in the painting in an idealized way and how at that moment where he's torn between the two other characters who are both tempting characters to him, what happens to him is he focuses inward on himself in a way that he wasn't before. His So his purity, his naivety, naivete, or uh, innocence, was the innocence of a child. And a child, in their innocence, looks outward on the world and doesn't focus on what people think of them you know they sometimes to the chagrin of their parents or other people around them you know parents will often say to a child oh why don't you you know you've got you look like a mess and you've got grass stains on your knees and your hair is uncombed or whatever and the child doesn't isn't looking at themselves the way that a parent looks at them they need they need an adult to make them presentable because they aren't focused on themselves that way. So this is a moment where Dorian turns inward to look at himself and he kind of stays inward focused for the rest of the story. He's focused on um, wanting on, on what he wants and the experiences he wants to have in a way that he wasn't before that moment. Right. Right. At, at that, at that point he sees himself and, and I'm not sure if this, if this is, this isn't necessarily everybody's experience, but again, this is my experience with reading the book. He sees himself as the physical appearance as what makes somebody vulnerable to, um, corruption and if his physical appearance does not become corrupted he believes that he cannot be corrupted so he can look outside of himself for for pleasures and stuff so long as his physical appearance maintains the incorruptible you know um youth so in the beginning I think this is probably where I was trying to get to. Dorian Gray doesn't specifically want, doesn't specifically have evil desires. He doesn't specifically want to go out and lead a debauched, immoral life. Um, he's not somebody who is hankering after those things and looking for some way to get them without any consequences. Right. But he, he is starting to think about... Um, how can I get away from the consequences of my actions, even though he doesn't have any specific evil actions in mind ahead of time? Well, he's not even not even necessarily the consequences of his action initially. He's just looking just to get away from the consequences of, of aging. 
Okay. Yeah. He doesn't want he doesn't want to age. He's looking at this picture. That's where that's where Basil's influence comes in. He looks at this picture of this beautiful youth and he thinks, wouldn't it be great if I always looked like that? And I never my hair never grayed. My my there I never got wrinkles in my face. I never that's when he actually makes that makes that that Faustian uh deal that's what he's thinking he's not thinking anything about in that moment about debauchery and 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 you know all that kind of stuff it's not till later when uh he continues to visit and 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 be with with lord henry and lord henry sees that he's maintaining this youthful look that lord henry is kind of convincing him that he can do whatever he wants so long as he maintains that so that that's a that's a later thing that the initial deal was made more from the more from the influence of basil than from the influ- influence of lord henry so he wants freedom from is freedom from the consequences of time right or just experience so he wants to remain naive and inexperienced in some way, at least in his physical at, appearance. At, right, at least in his physical appearance, because because he knows that 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 look, um, it, it's that look that he wants. So he's looking at a painting, but for in, all intents and purposes, at least symbolically, he's looking at a mirror of himself. Yes, and he's saying, "I see myself, and I don't want to change." I don't want to change. I don't want to grow. That, I think, is the real key, is he wants to be, he does not want to become. He wants to be what he is without ever having to change. And the pro- one of the problems is life is about change. We always change. So he's trying to create, to, to, to stay what he was and that's one of the things about our world today too is that our world tells people you need to accept who you are rather than saying you need to become something better than what you are and that's exactly what dorian uh bought into that philosophy of this is what i am and i don't ever want to be anything else and what he was looked really good right that's why I keep putting the emphasis on naivete as opposed to, to purity or innocence, because he really wasn't innocent in any sort of positive way, only innocent in a lack of experience, of, of experience yeah. which isn't actually a virtue or a good. Right, right. It's not better to be inexperienced. It's not better, no matter how how pure and innocent you look or seem it's not it's not better to to be naive and not and lack wisdom and maturity and understanding right but but isn't it interesting that that was the ideal that basil had mm-hmm. for dorian it wasn't the ideal that lord henry had lord henry's ideal was go out and get as much experience as you can now while you're young because people will love you while you're young and you're doing that. But when you get older and you do those things, people will not look at you with that, you know, all of a sudden you'll be the bad guy. But right now you can do it because you're young. So that's Lord Henry's advice. But it was it was Basil who was like, you're perfect. You're beautiful. You're perfect. This painting is perfect because it's a painting of you. So it was really Basil's influence that... that uh, 
influenced in the beginning the that that initial deal that he makes with the devil that selling of his soul so that the painting can age and he won't have to and then it's very interesting how how uh it, it's not just not just the aging but it's the you know when he i can't even remember what the first experience that he had was it was one with a with a with a woman that he is it with sybil vance yes yes and yeah. and he's so this this girl who's uh who's in the um theater company and he's all enamored by her and um and eventually she does something that makes him angry and he just walks away from her and when he looks at the painting that's the first time he sees a change in the painting he sees this sneer it's not even aging anymore it's the sneer that he has in the painting of uh you know the the way he treated this girl but it doesn't show up on on his own face it shows up into the painting and that's when he starts to i think that's the first time he really starts to listen to um to lord henry because it's it's in that moment that he realizes hey wait a minute i can do bad things and it's not going to show up on me. It's going to be in the painting. And that's also when he first hides the painting. He decides he's going to hide the painting because he can allow the painting to take on his, not just his age. Now he's starting to realize, I can let the painting take on my sins. And he feels like, therefore, that he's free of the consequences of his sins because the physical evidence of them is hidden away. Right. And nobody's going to suspect him of any of anything. And so, and so then, and then from there, he, he really becomes quite a bad person and really messes up a lot of people's lives and just, um, it gets really, really into this really, you know, he and Lord Henry together go off and and really live a really debauched life. And, uh, Basil at this point kind of is no longer in the story because, Basil's even though he loved the physical appearance he's he's not happy with the lifestyle that that Dorian is choosing and in fact is creating this cognitive dissonance for him this wait a minute there's this man who looks pure and perfect but I know what kind of a life he's living even though other people don't I know what he's doing and I think for Basil, that that's almost too much, and he kind of removes himself from the from the scene. And so you have quite a while where it's just Lord Henry and uh, Dorian hanging out together, doing some pretty bad things. Yeah, I I really feel like a good scripture to illustrate what's going on here is one from the New Testament, where it's where. Christ says that he who seeks his life shall lose it and he who loses his life for my sake shall find it and the thing that Dorian is seeking is his own beauty which is made equivalent to goodness so he wants to look good right both in the sense of attractiveness but also in the sense of of purity he wants to mm-hmm. look good 
and he's seeking for that. And because he's seeking for beauty and goodness, he's losing, losing it. And, and he does occasionally have a moment where he does a good deed for somebody. He has the, the, there's the one moment where the girl, he's kind of seeing this girl, and then he decides in that moment, I'm going to be good. I'm not going to. And he thinks, maybe if, I be, maybe if I'm good, the picture will start to lose some of that um, sin that it's taking that it's taken on and he thinks that maybe that will happen and so with that girl he he basically tells her I can't I can't be with you and I'm I'm really a bad person and and he does he lets her go and so so he has these moments where I'm going to be good and what does that do to the picture it doesn't do anything because because almost as soon as he decides he's going to be good something happens that triggers something bad um in fact i think it was almost right after that that he ends up murdering basil so do you think if he that's one that we needed the spoilers for right yes okay so do you think (laughs) yeah if he he does a good thing and then goes and commits murder and then looks at the portrait he's not going to see any improvement do you think if he was able to consistently do good deeds would he have seen the portrait reverse or are those are those consequences all there and and can't really be undone that's a really good question i, I my my personal opinion is i think that if he had turned his life around and started living a good life the age would have stayed in the painting, but the but the sins, the sneers, and the and the kind of the sinful look would be erased. So it would begin to look like somebody who has aged in a healthy, mature way. And what you would right. see is him gaining in wisdom and experience on the painting. It wouldn't just go back to looking like it did at the beginning. Right. But exactly. that he could look like some rather than looking like a horrible, twisted, depraved soul. Right, because because I believe in repentance. And, and with repentance comes true change and forgiveness. And that change would be reflected in the painting because that's all, that's the only deal he made was that the painting would, ref, would reflect his age. Now, because with his age the physical aging also came the the um aging of his character it's such an interesting thing to tie those two together isn't it to have the have his his sins be upon the painting as well as just right because it's his character the passage it's his of time. character that's showing in showing in the in the painting and um so it's 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 very interesting um, so I, I I do I think I think that if he if he were if he were to change his life, that that would that would be reflected in the in the painting. But he would still have had those experiences even if he repented of them and changed from them, and so you would still see the passage of time be- and the gaining of experience. Right. But it would cease to be ugly. Right, the experience would gradually change to a very positive-looking um, aging, rather than the ugly, grotesque aging that he sees in the painting. Um, yeah, I, I I think so. So I think I think that as I as I read as I read the book, 
my again my experience really um it really was an experience of he 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 had moments where he wanted to change he wanted to become good and in those moments he actually did good things the problem was every time he did he would allow his emotions later to uh move him to do something even worse and so when his friend when the painter basil comes over to the house eventually and he wants to convince his basil's getting ready to go to paris uh, to do some painting there and he says but he's he's telling him i'm stopping here for just an hour or so just to talk to you and he's kind of telling him that he's living this bad life and he needs to stop and he says you you look so good you you really could be a great example to people but you're really leading all of the people that care about you astray and and he says you're getting a really bad reputation and and then and that's when finally so uh, dorian has not allowed anyone to look at the painting and in this moment he's like he's going to show basil the painting out of spite he's like oh yeah i'm going to show you this painting you painted so you will you'll see what you did and he's, and he's blaming basil for it. i'm going to show you what you did to me by painting this painting and uh so well you blame basil a little bit for it too you said you I do. feel like he has some culpability well well it's in this this is the moment of the book where i where i where i started to realize that that oh wait a minute i was thinking of basil as the good guy and i realized all of a sudden in this moment that dorian was actually right it wasn't the painting of the it wasn't the painting that basil did that was bad it was idolizing the young man and in giving him that idol rather than putting his faith and focus in in god he was moving him to idolize himself and that was basil that really pushed him to that so when 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 he brings basil up to look at the painting he wants to spite basil he wants to say look this is what you did to me and and so when basil does get up and see that see the painting it uh it creates such a an anger and hatred in or 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 that's what um dorian is feeling in that moment this this just total hatred for this man who painted this this painting that is showing his sins and his age and his and so then in that moment he of rage he stabs uh basil to basil to death and that's again it, it you see what's happening is he's not he's it, it's still all in internal it's, he's always looking at himself he's always looking at this ideal but when he sees the painting he sees that he's not actually the ideal and that makes him mad and and he murders basil but but it is that moment that i realized no, Basil's the one who turned him to to the idol, and it turned him away from God. It wasn't um, Lord Henry in the first place; it was Basil and his idolizing of that character. That's great. Well, I think we should wrap up our discussion of this um, of this book for today and for this episode. When you're wrapping up working on processing a book with somebody what do you usually do after you've kind of talked through the experiences that they're having 
and talk about what is in the book and what were the experiences that they were having as a reader reading the book. Right. Well, and, and that really depends on that really depends on why I'm having them read the book. If, if we're dealing with real serious trauma, then usually after we've talked through the book, then I have them once they've externalized and processed at a third kind of a third person uh, viewpoint, then I have them process their own individual trauma with me. So then they're primed to narrate about their own experience right. and to make connections. Right. And they, then they're able, usually by then they're able to make really, uh, you know, narrate through their own experience. And by doing that, they're able to let go of it. You won't, you, trauma is very difficult to let go of. Uh, and a big part of that is because people, every time you try to narrate your trauma, you re-traumatize yourself. But I found that by working through an ex an external process, it it uh, makes it it makes it doable to be able to to narrate your own trauma and let go of it. So is this mostly useful for trauma? Oh no, I use it for I use it for lots of things. But like for if I if I'm using it and somebody's feeling working with depression or anxiety, we're not dealing with trauma. Then usually at the end of the book, we don't I don't have to do anything else. It's it, the experience itself is the therapeutic. Uh, so you're not tool. using the book or doing things to the book. You're experiencing the book first as a reader and then. And then together as a coach and a client, right. experience, heightening the experience through dis through right. discussion. And, and and once we've done that, it's done. I don't I don't have to I don't have to close out anything with the book. They've read the book. They've experienced the book, and that was that's what it was for. It wasn't there for me to use as some tool to get at the depression or to get at the anxiety or to get at. It was simply an experience for the client to have. So you weren't reading this book through any kind of an assignment or because uh, you want, wanted to assign it to somebody else. You were reading this book for your own personal enrichment. You chose it for your own personal enrichment. For, and, and for pleasure. And, I just yeah, that's what I mean. For, for, is, for delight. Right. And this is my favorite genre of book for myself is the, is the kind of dystopic type of book uh, where... In, in this case, it's kind of a horror, uh, but it's still a dystopic kind of function. It shows something about the world gone wrong. Right. And and I, that's just personally, I just enjoy reading that kind of book. Yeah, so you just chose this book for, for yourself, but you felt moved by it as you were reading it. You felt changed by it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so I just wondered if you wanted to reflect at all on the effect that you felt like the experience of reading Dorian Gray had on you. I know I've talked about that a little bit over the episode, but just like yeah. a, a closing thought. Well, you know, it, it, the thing, the thing is I, as I, as I, as I read Dorian Gray, the experience that I had was the experience of seeing different worldviews and how they can affect, um, well, in in this case, affecting Dorian Gray, but also how they how I can be affected by different worldviews, and and being careful not to let worldviews 
um, dictate somebody else's worldview, dictate my my direction, my choices, which that's what I think Dorian Gray's one of his problems was he was easily swayed. His choices, his actions were easily swayed by other people. And uh, so I think for me, that that's that's one of the things that for me and my experience that I look at it and I think, aha, <laughs> I, I need to be watchful. Um, <clears throat> and also, I think the other thing is I need to know what my own worldview is and what I actually believe to be true. And because, again, Dorian was a very young, very young, got caught up in other worldviews, but he didn't have any real direction of his own. He was directionless when he ran into these two men. So having a direction, having a, a purpose, I think is a, um, is really important. So, but I love, I love this book and I love the feeling. I love the writing. And that's one of the things I think as you're reading just being able to enjoy the book and enjoy the writing is uh, is, is such a, a wonderful part of the experience. So I, I, when, I, when I assign books, I usually assign books that I think are well-written. I don't assign books that I feel like are, are kind of... Yeah, you're not subpar. going for the message over the, over the matter of the right, book. Right, right. I want people to be able to read good literature good literature that that will enhance their lives regardless of whether it has anything to do with why they came to see me or not all right well i think that's about it for today um do we have a book that we're going to be working on next i know you want to be talking about a christmas carol at christmas time i think in november we were going to do smith in the city oh okay great so pg woodhouse yes and uh that that's going to be great fun a light comedic novel like a polar opposite of the picture of dorian gray yes <laughs> they're both british that's about all they have in common yes exactly also written in a similar time similar period. time period they're, they're both they're set about the same time yeah sim- so it's, it's actually there'll be an in, an interesting juxtaposition there between right. these two books i like i like that being so that'll be so we'll do um smith in the city next if we're november and then we'll do um christmas, christmas carol. carol in december and okay. then we'll we'll talk about what, what other books we're going to do after that all right well um that's it for today then and we hope that we have been able to um help you today in having um an enhanced experience with literature and we hope to see you again. Thanks.